0: Well, greetings, church. Uh, my heart is full. My heart is full. Uh, I've been encouraged just in the singing, in the fellowship, before uh, service. Uh, this, is a, this is a dear, precious church, and you're precious to the Lord Jesus. You're precious to him. Uh, we are going to be in Psalm 62 this morning. Psalm 62. So please turn your Bibles to Psalm 62 and just say amen when you have it, and then I'll know I can read it. Those are sufficient amens. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge to us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you were rendered to a man according to his work. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are nothing without you. We have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. And we ask that by your spirit, you would speak. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive food from your holy word. Take your word, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us into your likeness. I ask that you would do this for the glory of your name and for the good and prospering of your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. In her book, A Spacious Life, author Ashley Hale writes on the topic of waiting, and she says this, when we learn to wait well, we get to leave behind the hustle that feels like anxiety, the sense we're always behind where we should be. When we wait well, we leave behind hurry. We slow down to see the beauty of being a creature, of part of God's good created order. Not the masters who are responsible for keeping it all spinning. Waiting allows us to see ourselves as exuberant children running to God. Waiting is good news. It is an invitation into a spacious life, not a barrier to it. Waiting time isn't wasted time. And that's true. And our psalm this morning is a psalm of trust in waiting. And the text simply titles this as a psalm of David. Uh, the bold headings there at the top are uninspired. And what is the occasion of the psalm? What, is, what circumstance is David waiting in? Well, it, it's probably written while David was a king and was in the midst of intense conflict with his son, Absalom. David had gotten a little lax and the kingdom started to drift away from him. And Absalom sees this as an opportunity to capitalize and kick David off of his throne. And and the thing is, everyone loved Absalom. He was handsome, head to toe. 2 Samuel 14 says that his hair, which was a symbol of his strength, was wonderfully full and beautiful. And that he would cut it at the end of the year and he would weigh it and it would measure up to four or five pounds. It's a lot of hair. (laughs) He was well-liked, he was good-looking, and he was the son of a king and he knew it. Absalom begins to challenge his father, King David, by taking over his authority, publicly belittling him and spreading rumors, and he secretly assembles an army and promotes the false narrative across Israel that he, not his father David, is the true king, and as a result, David loses the support of the younger generation in his kingdom, and it puts his leadership in this precarious position. David learns of all that's going on, and in his alarm and in his confusion and in his fear, even his anger, he's driven back to God. He is in trouble and he is waiting alone for God to help. And while he's waiting, he likely wrote this prayer. It's a psalm written under pressure but it radiates this profound trust and hope in God. Be with me, church? It's a psalm written by David that is expressing trust in a conversation he's having with God. And he's also having a conversation with himself. And I'd like to walk through the psalm in three honest statements, and I want us to imagine that they are, they are in David's voice. These are three points. Point number one, I'm in trouble. We see that in verses one to four. Point number two, tell me the truth. We see that in verses 5 to 8. And point number 3, teach me the difference. And we see that in verses 9 to 12. I'm in trouble. Tell me the truth. Teach me the difference. And in those three statements, I think we as Christians have a kind of recipe for how to navigate trouble when it comes. And, And I hope that as we leave this morning, we leave remembering this. And you can write this down if you take notes. Because of Christ, because of Christ, it is possible to be in trouble and not be troubled. Because of Christ, it is possible to be surrounded by adversity and still be confident and clear. Because of Christ. Amen, indeed. Point number one I'm in trouble. Let's, let's actually start in verses three to four in this first point, and then I want to circle back to one and two, because I want us to see the context in which David declares his trust. David is in danger, and he is honest about that danger. Look at verses three and four. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, to thrust him down from his high position? And so David is in real trouble. He is vulnerable, and he is sensing his weakness. Let's consider the troublemakers that he is, that he is fearful of or that he is, he, is, he is against. Notice David's opponents verbally assault him. The essence here is that they are trying to break his spirit with their words. They're using intimidation tactics like rumors and insults. It's not so much physical harm as it is emotional harm. David's own son is using words to inflict wounds that stay even after our, our bodies have healed. No, no, notice a couple things about the evil that these troublemakers are doing. They delight in, in breaking down the weak and the bruised. David seems to, to, to get at this by his statement in verse 3, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. He's beaten down, almost ready to break. And one more shove, one more emotional jab, and he'll topple over. And that's when his his enemies pounce. They they kick him while he's down. And that is what the world might call survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive. The weak are weeded out. Not only are they breaking him down in his vulnerability or attempting to, they're plotting evil. Look at verse 4. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. Not only are they plotting evil, but they're obsessed with it. They only plan to do this, and they delight in falsehood on top of that. They enjoy lying. This comes out in their hypocrisy, which is another characteristic of the trouble they're causing David. They're hypocrites. Look at the second half of verse 4. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They say nice things to someone's face while spewing hatred on the inside or behind their back. Their weapons are abuse the vulnerable, map out a plan for their destruction using lies and pretend kindness, and hopefully their opponents fall. This could be a playbook for business strategy in today's world or even a political campaign, couldn't it? These, these, are, these tactics are appealing to the world because lies and deceit can appear as powerful tools in the race to be on top or the struggle to be popular or liked. I recently watched a, a clip of an Instagram influencer who was filmed picking up trash on a beach. They took several good shots. Maybe they applied a filter or two. And after they were finished recording, there was an onlooker who, who, who was filming as well, and he kept his camera rolling as the influencer tossed the trash back on the beach and walked off. But I'm, I'm certain that they got a lot of likes and a lot of hearts on that post because lies work to a point. Hypocrisy is an effective tool to a point As we'll see toward the end of the psalm, it it has an end. Interestingly enough, translators actually appear to struggle with pinpointing the exact emphasis that David is conveying with that imagery of a leaning wall and a tottering fence. On a surface, it seems the strong are preying on David, who is weak. However, the, the true narrative might actually differ. What David might actually be talking about is the wicked ones, the evil ones who are as a leaning wall, a tottering fence. Could, could it be that those appearing strong are actually on the verge of collapse? Why? Because their dishonesty, their lies, their pretense, their hatred is their undoing. In the end, that's what sin does. It presents itself as strength and help, but only leaves us worse than it found us. And I think David knows that they cannot succeed by using sinful methods, even if they secure a few early wins. David is ultimately the unshakable one in this psalm. Why? Because of David's God. Because David has the Lord, and rather than being a God who beats the weak while they are down, God does what? He gives grace to the humble. This is how he introduces himself to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, what a way to introduce yourself with thunder and lightning and you think he would say, I'm powerful and I'm... No! He says, I'm merciful and I'm gracious and I'm slow to get angry and I have love that abounds. He's gentle with bruised reeds, church. And rather than exploit weakness to harm us, his strength is made perfect in weakness. This is what the Lord tells Paul in 2 Corinthians. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, he says, well, then I'm strong. Yeah. And isn't this how Jesus talks about himself when he invites the weak and the weary and the burden to come to him? Why? Because he's gentle and he's humble. He's lowly in heart. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. In him we find rest for our souls. And that is what David is after. And that is what he finds. In his God, this is the God that David is crying out to in confidence. And he is honest about his trouble. But he knows, verses 1 to 2, that God alone is his rock, his salvation, his fortress. He shall not be greatly shaken. The the, the force behind that that phrase, a rock, a fortress, is God is his top security. There's actually an emphasis of certainty that comes out, I think, better in the King James. It says, truly, or yes, indeed. Indeed. He is my rock and my salvation. And used six times in this psalm. David is a king with resources and armies at his command and disposal, and yet his confidence isn't in any of that. It's in God, his fortress, his top security. He is in trouble. He is in real trouble, but he's not troubled. He's vulnerable, but he speaks about the source of his strength. And and just think of our lives. I think of my life. What's thrown us into a a panic this week? Has it been an unkind word? Has it been money issues? Has it been family conflict or concerns? Has it been worry about your children? Has it been health? The the truth is our circumstances can plunge us into deep distress and, and real alarm and real concern, real trouble. But believer, when Christ is ours... We we can look up and say with David, he is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. If if we are in Christ's church, those things or people that would do us real harm simply do not have the power to move us. If we by faith know that Christ is our defense, our souls can rest secure. There are thousands and thousands of of paper fortresses that would invite us to find safety and comfort in them. Money, sex, entertainment, well-behaved kids even, political parties. But all of them will fail. We know this because none of them are Christ. Christ alone is a mighty fortress. A bulwark never failing. A helper he amid the flood. Of mortal ills prevailing. He's a fortress for his people. And I would just encourage you to look around now at your fellow church members and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look around. And I wonder if you recognize the safety that God himself has provided, because where his church is, he is there. I wonder if you've recognized the safety he's provided in his people. He provides safety in trouble for you in the church, through the church. I'm reminded of this illustration of this, this goldfish. It's called the gold saddle goat fish. It's a small fish. It's native to Hawaii in its reefs, and it has this distinctive color. And divers in Hawaii came across a, a fascinating phenomenon. D- during their regular dives, they, they noticed a large fish with the same brilliant colors as this, this goldfish. It, was a, it, 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 it stuck out to them, but they got a little closer and they inspected it, and what they realized was that it was a school of these gold saddle, gold goat fish swimming together in such impressive unity and in such a perfect fish-shaped pattern as to appear like one imposingly large fish, not to be trifled with. It turns out when these fish feel threatened, when they feel Troubled, they join together, unified in formation, to appear much larger, much stronger. And what a good example, I think, that is for us as Christians when we're tempted to turn inward, trusting in ourselves for safety or or to, to go to things that cannot help us. What an example it is in a call to, to huddle up with God's people in the face of trouble as one body where Jesus says, I'm there. I'm in the midst. So much help for us in Christ. David is honest about his trouble and he turns to himself now. He says, I'm in trouble. And he turns to himself to hear the truth. Tell me the truth. This is point number two. Notice in verses five to six, he repeats himself almost word for word the things he's just been saying. He alone is. Only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. He repeats the truth. Why? Because this is how he calms his soul in the face of trouble. We we just considered it in the call to worship earlier. Pastor said, I'm going to tell you things that you already know. You see, the the second section sounds almost identical to the beginning of the psalm, only with a few small differences. For God alone, O my soul, Wait in silence. Literally, be silent, soul. Be still. Note two things here. One is that David preaches to himself, again, things that he already knows. There's a lot that we could say on this. Books have been written about preaching to yourself. Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges is a, is a great one. I'd highly recommend it. I'm sure many of you have read it. So much we could say about preaching to ourselves. But as I meditated on this particular matter, the idea of, of speaking truth to my own heart, two simple things came to mind. One is that we are always preaching to ourselves. And, and the second is that we have to, we must. Not a day goes by when we are not preaching to ourselves. And as David is in trouble, he turns inward to his soul and tells himself the truth again. God is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And and notice the effectiveness. I wonder if you picked up on it as we read it. Notice the effectiveness of this little sermon that David's giving himself. In verse 2 he says, I will not be shaken. You're not reading. (laughs) Verse two. You got it. I will not be greatly shaken. In other words, I'll be shaken a little bit, but it won't be that bad. I won't be greatly shaken. But but now, after he's preached to himself things that he knows are true, he says without qualification in verse six, "I will not be shaken." If there was partial confidence, it's been replaced with complete assurance. The words from verse 2 have already begun to take root in his heart and stabilize his soul. Think of the sermon that David could have been preaching to himself. All is lost. The kingdom is in shambles. Life will never be good again. My family's ruined. It's over. That's sometimes the sermons that we preach to ourselves. But David looks away from himself his surroundings, and he preaches of God's salvation. Yes, indeed, he alone is my rock and my salvation. And beloved, we are always preaching to ourselves. And if we are going to be in trouble and not be troubled, we must, we must preach gospel to ourselves. We must preach the truth of who God is to our souls. Paul David Tripp says, you are constantly preaching to yourself some kind of gospel. You preach to yourself an anti-gospel of your own righteousness, power, and wisdom. Or you preach to yourself the true gospel of deep spiritual need and sufficient grace. You preach to yourself an anti-gospel of aloneness and inability. Or you preach to yourself the true gospel of the presence and provision and power of an ever-present Christ. How do you speak to your soul? How do I speak to my soul? Do, Do I speak to my soul in times of trouble, the truth? Of Christ? How many times have I told myself of Christ's abiding and sacrificial love for me today? Do I see the truth of the gospel as a valuable weapon in my spiritual armory in times of trouble? It is. It is. So David preaches to himself. Second thing to note here is that David tells his soul to be still and wait. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. David's trust of God in times of trouble is strengthened in stillness and waiting. Now, these are two things that I generally do not like to do, inactivity and waiting. But but as I've been forced to learn over time, and I believe God will continue to teach me, the majority of our lives will be spent waiting on God for one thing or another. For God alone. David says, wait in silence. And I struggle with stillness and waiting. Maybe you do too. Because I feel I'm not any good if I'm just sitting there. I feel useless if i'm not doing something or or maybe sometimes because it's even scary to be alone with my thoughts or because my heart is just so resistant to prayer i got up this morning and struggled to pray just sit there lord help me pray help me to be still it's hard waiting can feel like an inconvenience we, we know this. I mean, just get in the line at Target, right? You're in the line at Target, and what do you do? You can't just stand there. you got to scroll on your phone. We, we can't help but be distracted. But waiting exposes how limited our power and knowledge really is and just how out of control we actually are. In his commentary on the Psalms, John Phillips writes this. Inactivity seems to be the worst possible policy, Do something, anything. Don't just sit there. Do something. That is Satan's advice to the soul. Satan uses high-pressure tactics. He is the one who urges us to act impulsively, prayerlessly. Occasionally, of course, the Holy Spirit will prompt an exercised, sensitive believer to do something on the spur of the moment. But that is not the usual way. He gives us time to be still. Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as He has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know His voice who ruled them while He dwelt below. Be still. If David doesn't slow down here, preach. To himself and tell himself to be still, wait on the Lord. He won't be able to hear the truth of verse 7. Look at verse 7. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my rock, my refuge is God. He has to slow down to, to get to verse 7. What's, what's coming out here? Well, David has learned through waiting and being honest about his trouble that to really get to him, To really get to David, Absalom is going to have to break down David's defense. The word glory there can be understood as David's dignity and his significance. So David understands that for Absalom to really affect him, it's going to take more than just lies. He'll have to undo what God actually says about his covenant people. To really and truly ruin David, Absalom would have to have enough strength to crush the mighty rock and forfeit David's salvation. And he knows, David knows, any enemy from within or from without is no match for his God. Compared to the unwavering strength and and pureness and saving power of the covenant-keeping God, Absalom's self-centered efforts to rally people around his ego just seem laughable now. It seems silly. David was in trouble, but he's not troubled. Beloved, what David knew in part, we know completely. Jesus is our surety and strength. He is the rock on which our salvation rests and the the cornerstone on whom the church is built. He is where our dignity and significance rests because we are in Christ. The Bible says we are a new creation. We've been crucified with him. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, we are covered in his very righteousness, church. He is the one who has overcome the world, he says in John 16. And so to truly get to the church, to truly get to us, to, uh, to, 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 to do real damage, sin our flesh, and the devil will have to overcome the defense of Christ. They'll have to be able to remove his righteousness from us and separate us from the fortress of his love. And that's no match. He is our unshakable refuge who gives the church eternal life. And of the church, he says, they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. And so to truly get to us, church, the world would have to strip the cross of its power to save sinners to the utter- uttermost. And that's no match. Right. To, to truly get to us, to do real lasting harm, evil spiritual adversaries would have to take Christ off his throne and put him back in the tomb. And that's no match. He, he always lives to make intercession for us who draw near to him through faith. Because of Jesus Christ and Christ alone, we can be in trouble. And not be troubled. David has been strengthened, as I hope we've been strengthened. So he turns now to everyone else in verse 8. Look what he says in verse 8. Trust in him at all times. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. David is so helped by God that he can't keep from helping others now. He, he looks around and says, hey, everybody, you got you to come and get some of this. Come, come get some of this. Trust him. Trust him at all times, meaning every circumstance, because this is how life happens. Life happens in circumstance. I am driving. I am waiting. I am sick. I am fearful. I am confused. I am excited. I am discouraged. I am joyful. My supply is running low. When must we trust God in all of those? He is a God for all seasons and all circumstances. Derek Kidner says, What David has found in one crisis will avail him at all times. What God has been to him, he can be for others. And notice, it's not a command, it's not a suggestion here, it's a command. Trust in him at all times. We should trust, family, when we cannot see, when we're utterly in the dark. Spurgeon says adversity is a fit season for faith, but prosperity is not less so. God at all times deserves our confidence. We at all times need to place our confidence in Him. Not only are we encouraged here to trust God in verse 8, what else are we encouraged to do? Pour out our heart before Him. The psalm has a lot to do with silence and stillness, but here David tells the people to speak pour out your hearts. All the time. It's like emptying a container of water. That is what it's like to trust God. If, if silence before the Lord is dis- discipline in waiting on him, then, then this is the discipline of unburdening ourselves before him. I have a friend I'll call when I'm burdened, and he can tell, and he says, unburden yourself, brother, and I'll just share. And the Lord invites us to do that. At his feet, the act of speaking our trust to the God who is actually there. We can tell him everything that comes across our hearts. Your thoughts, desires, sins, confession, regrets, hopes, dreams, concern, nothing is off limits. Nothing is hidden from him. If if our hearts and minds are like vessels to be poured out, imagine the consequences then of keeping things in. To, To bite our tongues before the Lord. And that's our tendency sometimes, isn't it? That's, that's my tendency from time to time. And what happens? I might swell up with anger. I might start to crack with despair. I might become inflated with pride or even crippled with guilt. And David's encouragement here is pour all that out. Pour it out. How do we exercise faith in God? We, we unload everything at the feet of Jesus. And expect our Savior to deal gently and rightly and kindly and warmly and lovingly with us. This section ends with David teaching others what he's learned himself. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. To those who pour out their hearts to the Lord, he is a safe place. Notice, God is a refuge for us, he says. For those who do not know him, he is a judge. That's a fearful thing, to have God as judge. And that's what he is to those who don't trust in Christ and place their faith in him. He will one day judge all. And for those who are in Christ, he will judge you righteous, clean, and he'll bring you into glory. And for those who are not, he'll send you away. His judgment ends in hell. And for those that don't know Christ this morning, I would plead with you to come to him by faith. He will by no means turn you away. Come to him for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust in Christ, in Christ alone. And the Bible says you will be clothed in the very righteousness of the Son. God will see you as if you've never done any wrong. He will accredit to you the perfect righteousness of his Son, Christ. David knows who his refuge is. And David knows that this, and in his final stanza, uh, he sums up his final point here. This is our last point, teach me the difference. You still with me, church? Yes. All right. Look at verses 9 and 10. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. There there are three categories that David draws attention to in these two verses. Money, man, power, and money. Those of low estate is, is really just the NASB. If you have a NASB, it just says men. All people, poor, wealthy, ordinary, high up, are a breath, are a delusion. This is a metaphorical way of saying that at the end of the day, Compared to God, people are insubstantial puffs of wind who pass away as if they were only dreams, delusions. We go up in the divine balances of eternity and we are weighed against the weight and glory of God. And even though we might seem like something down here and really special for now, we're like an insubstantial gust of air. Now consider this in its likely context. David's enemies are putting their trust in Absalom, His popularity, his followers, his clicks, his his likes. He's got some power, but he's taken sides against God and his true anointed. And perhaps you remember what happens to Absalom in 2 Samuel. He finally gets what he wants, a war with his father, the king. This is his chance. And in 2 Samuel, we're told that he's riding toward David in battle, and he's caught by his hair on a branch and driven through with spears, a breath. What about Absalom's power? You know, the power he gained through manipulation, fears, lies, violence, propaganda, conspiracy. It's gone. Put no trust in extortion, David says in verse 10. Set no vain hopes on robbery. He sees Absalom and his power that died with him. And here the warning here is that the the plans of the powerful to oppress and rob the poor and defy God will be visited by the judge of all the earth. And the judge will do right, the Bible says. Don't hope in things that will be undone by death and judgment. David says in verse 10, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. If you're making money, don't set your heart on that. They, They can't buy anything that really matters. And all it takes is a stock market crash or your checking account to get hacked, and and there they go, too. This is why Paul tells Timothy to instruct the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with with everything to enjoy and to be rich in good works. He says so that they might take hold of that which is truly life. David's point is no human securities will survive. And the point really is not so much that we have nothing to fear from man, power, and money, but that we have nothing to hope in from any of them. David's learned the difference. He says in verses 11 and 12, the end of the psalm, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is a figurative way of saying that God has spoken many times. Once God has spoken, or twice God has spoken, sorry, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. Figurative way of saying, he's spoken many times. He's repeated himself to me. And that's merciful. He doesn't get exasperated and annoyed by having to repeat himself to his children. Even when we forget, he repeats himself. And what is God's lesson for David and us? Notice three words. Power, love, and render. In his trouble, David has learned the difference between man and God. Man is fleeting and faulty, and God is all-powerful, committed in perfect love. And God is wholly just. He will render Rightly. All that Absalom pretended to be, David learns God actually is. All that man's power, money, and influence pretended to have, God actually has. Man is shaky. God is his rock. Man pretends to love, but he lies. God has committed covenant faithful love for his people. Man says he will render justice, and in the morally questionable world that we live, justice is not done. Crimes are overlooked and the guilty are spared, but God actually renders to a man according to his work. That's a fearful thing to consider that those who won't accept God's free pardon in Christ must face the fair trial of God's justice on their own. But don't we see the Savior here? Perfectly imaged in the last two verses. Don't you see Jesus? He is the lesson learned, really, at the end of the psalm. This is a description of the character of Christ. Jesus shows us this Psalm 62 that David wrote is real. The God of this Psalm is real. We see this in the limitless power that Christ has as the creator of everything, the healer of the sick, the giver of sight to the blind, and raising the dead. He is the God of power. He's the savior of power. We see in him In in Christ's perfect committed love, love displayed in in death for our sins, your sin, my sin, at the cross where God's perfect justice for our crimes was poured out on him. And Jesus rose to life on the third day, ascended, and he will return to render, deliver perfect justice in the world. What does David see at the end of the psalm? He sees the Savior. He sees the Messiah. And while we, his people, wait for his return, Jesus is our perfect, unshakable security. From all that would threaten us, frighten us, tempt us to be silent or coax us into ungodly behavior, Jesus is the reason that we can be in trouble and not be troubled. We can wait and trust in trouble. We can, by faith, be honest with him about our trouble and find safety in him. Because of Christ, we can preach the truth to ourselves and one another. Andrew Murray says this. You're not going to wait on yourself to see what you feel and what changes come to you. You're going to wait on God to know first what he is. And then after that, what he will do. We wait on God to know who he is. And what does he show us? Who does he show us? As we wait on him, he shows us how sufficient our Savior is. I turn to wisdom, not my own, the song says, for every battle you have won. My confidence will rest on you. Your love endures, your ways are good. When I am weary with the cost, I see the triumph of the cross. So in its shadow I shall run. Till he completes the work that he's begun. That's the call, church. We look to Christ. We wait looking to him, and he will show us. He will show us himself, and we will see all of our security, all of our trust, all of our help comes from him. We can be in much trouble, and because of Christ, not be troubled. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that by your spirit, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would cause your word to bear good fruit in the life of your church so that the kingdom would be spread and Christ would be glorified in our midst. We ask all this for the sake of Jesus. Amen. 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 Amen.